listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. What's that? Is that say Sims? It is, yeah. Oh, yeah, my best buddy. I got to take a photo of that. Where's my camera? My best buddy in town, his name is John Sims. He would love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it's a fly fishing brand, actually. Oh, is that yeah, right? They make, make waders and jackets. And oh, yeah, cool. Well, I'll take I think I left my, my phone in, uh, in oh, the well. office. but uh, I'll take a picture yeah, and email, email it to, it to you. me. Yeah. This is my current favorite t-shirt. I got it way up at 71 degrees latitude like that's you know that's mid baffin island up mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. on the border of russia finland and norway you know middle of nowhere but yeah. a, a sami museum like the reindeer herder folks yeah and uh this guy's a really cool artist Is that hand painted uh i don't think so no, it, looks I, okay. it was i mean there were only dozens of them yeah, but yeah. uh i don't think it's hand painted but he also makes this stuff and yeah Neat. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a pretty cool part we'll, of the world. Way the hell up we'll there. Get, um, at the end of this, we'll get a picture of you because you'll go up on the cover. Oh, okay. Cover page. Sure. And, uh, yeah. We'll we'll include that little thing because that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah, cool. it's a so. pretty old part of the world. Humans have been there a long oh time. My, oh my god. Yeah. 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 So welcome everybody. Uh, I'm your host Mark Hall, and I'm Curtis Hall, and we're in uh, Revelstoke, British Columbia today. It's absolutely beautiful here and we're joined by um, Dr. Rob Soroya from University of Alberta. How you doing Rob? Great. It's uh, it's fun to be here with you guys and uh, it really is a gorgeous day. I wish the temperature could stay like this all summer. Not Just too hot. Of, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it is it's a great day. Still snow on the mountains here, the Columbia Mountain Range. It looks looks like there's still quite a bit up there, so so Rob, you're um, director of the Caribou Monitoring Unit of the uh, Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful. The ABMI, it's uh, they've got this grid where they've got a sampling station every 20 kilometers across the whole province, and uh, it's there's really nothing else like it in the world. Partly because, um, yeah, there's so much money to monitor biodiversity from from the oil business right so a lot of the money comes from government and oil so they they can do an amazing arm's length independent way of monitoring what's going on across the whole province so they have these sampling stations where they have cameras and audio recorders so they measure everything and they dig in the ground every five years and measure all everything all the soil mites and you know bacteria everything and um, wow yeah, just to try and get a you know state of the art monitoring of the province. So they have partnerships. ABMI has partnerships with the government and the oil industry, of course, and academia. It was started by academics, and um, yeah, the Caribou Monitoring Unit doesn't really fit within ABMI <laughs> because that grid you can't monitor a rare species like caribou on a twenty-kilometer grid. So we don't fit, but we're we're kind of. Um, off-grid sort of nested within their their monitoring scheme oh wow that's that's quite uh quite extensive so so how did you land in revelstoke oh yeah well i've been here a while i mean it's it's more how did i land up there <laughs> you know they would prefer me to be up there but i've always said you know I'd, i i I, uh, I don't, I never wanted to be an ivory tower academic. I, um, I think the way things are going in the world now with, uh, 
GPS radio callers and satellite uplinks, like all our students now just sit in front of their computers and watch the data come in from the satellite, right? From these radio collared animals, from the predators and the, and the ungulates. Um, and uh, my mentor, Bruce McClellan, taught me that that's not the way to go. You know, um, in some ways, we may be learning less with these, uh, these high-tech devices. Because you're not out there getting dirty. You're not out there getting dirty with the old VHF callers where you had to call, f- trudge through the bush with, and triangulate, um, you know, pre-satellite stuff, sort of uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s type thing. It really started coming in the mid-90s, the fancier callers. So I, I just wanted to live in my in my study system, not on, you know, in a concrete jungle. However, you do make a lot of advances when you do live in the concrete jungle. So I pop up there once in a while. Once in a while. And I'm also um, an adjunct prof at uh, UBC Okanagan. Oh, okay. So I have some students there now that I, and I, I pop over there frequently enough. Yeah, but Revelstoke is, is the, the fun place to be. Cool. For sure. Do you hassle Adam Ford there when you're there? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. the one who got me that position. So Nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's so, a, he's an awesome guy. Yeah, so, so you've been researching for twenty plus years now. Yeah, I haven't even thought of that math. How long that goes back now? Oh. Um, yeah, in Montreal, I was uh, researching as a as a young person in the early nineties, the invasion of the zebra mussels. Yep. So where I used to go swimming and snorkeling and putting on my mask when I was six, seven, eight years old, you know, you could see all the crayfish and uh, native bivalve mollusks, right? And of course, go fishing and everything. And then uh, almost suddenly, the zebra mussels invaded and they would encrust the crayfish and the native uh, unionid mussels. And uh, the whole substrate changed to this, these, you know, 100,000 per square meter. So that wow. was my introduction to sort of biology and like, wow, this is, uh, yeah. So, and then. Kind of got your, that was your path? That was yeah. the path. Yeah. That was like, wow, the, the world changes. So you got to figure stuff out. If you just uh, leave it up to sort of natural regulation, that's not realistic because we change the world. So, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how many times you hear that story of being the motivation for a person in conservation Mm -hmm. is this is their childhood memory of an experience. Exactly. An empty lot. They come back. It's a subdivision. It's changed. And it's like, it's, it hits them, right? Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. And the other big motivator was I had these neighbors, a Russian and Polish couple who emigrated right after World War II, of course. And, uh, and they didn't have kids of their own, but they, they had, you know, quite the upbringing. I mean, he fought heavily in the war, didn't like to talk about it much, but he was an engineer and they went in the bush a lot. So he, you know, he taught me to shoot, you know, my first 22 and, um, yeah, that was the other half of the, uh, of the of the motivator, and oh. my sister taking me out a lot oh. in the bush. Yeah, they, my brother and sister are much older than me, so yeah, yeah. Well, that's an awesome, that's an awesome mentor. So you've been um, uh, over o- over your career here. You've been involved in studying moose, bighorn sheep, wolves, mule deer, obviously some some zebra mussels, aquatic yeah, stuff, yeah. and and caribou. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun ride, and I've been luckier than most. That's for sure. Oh. Um, definitely, yeah. It's funny to think about because when I 
I came into this, you know, uh, part of my motivation, you know, for large mammals and such was, you know, reading White Fang, reading Never Cry Wolf from Farley Mowat, and then you start realize that there's a bit more realism than <laughs> than some of that stuff, and you you dive into it, and uh, and uh, oh yeah, I subscribe to the the all the wolf conservation magazines, and the and and I still believe in all that stuff, but you also realize there's bigger pictures and there's uh you know there's trade-offs in the real world that yes. we have to think about yes really important ones really important ones yeah. yeah and when it comes and so yeah and then then when i'm when i'm i went to the yukon when i was 18 or so and then and then you start to realize yeah there's trade-offs and a problem like caribou woodland caribou is the way i call it it's North America may be the world's biggest terrestrial conservation challenge. There's nothing else that comes close. Sure, the oceans are a mess. Lakes, you know, there's all sorts of issues with freshwater systems as well. But the, and the oceans have mega, mega problems, no question. But when it comes to land, whenever you have a critter that's naturally rare, you know, never super abundant caribou, unlike barren ground caribou, you know, woodland caribou, uh, one of their main strategies was rarity at calving. Um, when you have a species that's never super abundant, but that covers an enormous area, like 3 million square kilometers from Alaska to Newfoundland, they necessarily will overlap with resources valued by humans, like yes. oil and gas and forestry. And there's just, it's like spotted owl, but times 10 or 100, yeah. right? They're just, they, they live across such a vast expanse. And then you, you, you merge from these mountains with these, you know, 500 year old cedar trees into the boreal forest, which turn over more often than these cedar systems. They, you know, they burn more often. Nonetheless, the critical habitat of caribou in many places overlap with as much oil as you can find in Saudi Arabia, right? The, uh, (laughs) the oil sands, it's like the world's second or Alaska. Yeah. And Alaska, huge, huge oil deposits. So what else could, I mean, I'd love to hear about other potential socioeconomic conflicts, but this is the one yeah. and we'll be dealing with this in and perpetuity. These are, these are the, the species that have driven like the international treaties, right? Like, you know, when you think of the migratory waterfall, you know, yeah. from, from the Arctic to, you know, South America. Yeah. And, and so what you're talking about, I mean, those are species that are bridging, um, like continents. Yeah. Bang so on. Yeah. Caribou, um, other than the herds that we just lost in Idaho and that were in Montana, we're primarily talking like a North America, but like an East West thing from Alaska to, to Eastern Canada. Oh yeah. It's a huge, it's a huge swath. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So that's why everyone's freaking out. I mean, uh, you know, right here in town, the day after I got back from Norway, there were about 700 people with the public consultation session here. And uh, I was getting emails even while I was still in Norway from everyone from the forestry community. Even the bike club was emailing me, the mountain bike club. Like, what does this mean? And, you know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know the meeting was happening. I was, yeah. I was pretty content hiding out <laughs> yeah, so on a different for, continent. For, but. for listeners, uh, oh, we'll get into this a little bit, but there was a, um, a series of public meetings held in the province um, by the provincial and federal governments to talk about a new caribou recovery strategy and agreement with First Nations uh, in Northern British Columbia to get on top of this 
an ongoing problem of, of endangered caribou. And so they held a series of meetings around uh, the province. Uh, we went to the one that was in Cranbrook, uh, which was oh, the yeah. last one in, in the province. But some of those meetings in northern BC became very heated and, um, <clears throat> you know, jobs uh, versus wolves, that whole thing that came up. So mm -hmm. it really got communities charged. And, and with all of this sort of um, rumors floating around that the caribou recovery strategy was going to close out the backcountry to industry and everybody. So, so that's what you're talking about. You're getting bombarded by people going, am I not being allowed to take my mountain bike out there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, right to forestry. And, and I mean, I don't know if we want to touch on this now or yeah, we, we definitely get into what I'd yeah. like to do right now is just, um, for listeners, um, just kind of step back and let's just talk a little bit about the context of caribou in Canada. So, uh, our main species. So Perry. Yeah. Perry subspecies caribou. you mean? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Subspecies. Yep. So there's one, it's funny, like caribou, like they're, they're, they're all... one species across the world. Yes. So, uh, same again, I just, bears. yeah, like... same with brown bears and grizzly bears. And, um, yeah, so I just spent uh, seven months in Scandinavia, Norway, and, uh, you know, it was fascinating. Yeah, so there's a forest reindeer. So the caribou, you know, caribou reindeer, they're Rangifer tyrandus. Yes. So they're all one species. And in Canada, we've got five subspecies. Um, so there's Perry caribou, barren ground caribou, uh, Grant's caribou west of the Mackenzie, um, and there's woodland caribou, and... Uh, yeah, I'm probably forgetting one there. <laughs> and there uh, was the there was Dawson? The, the Dawson on the Charlottes. Yeah. Yes, which one? Yeah. Went so they're extinct. Went extinct so. Yeah. So the um, Perry, the Perry caribou, are Arctic. Yeah. Mostly the Arctic. Ellesmere Island. Islands. Yeah. Yeah. Real tiny little guys. Tiny little guys, a lot like the Svalbard reindeer, um, on on the island of Svalbard, which is part of Norway. Norway. Yeah. And then yeah. the Barren Grounds. Uh, yeah. They're Greenlandicus. <clears throat> yeah, Ranger for Trandus Greenlandicus. So they're yeah. they're are they the ones that have the largest migratory movements, aren't they? In yeah, North and and huge migra migrations. So that's kind of what you. It's like one of the wonders of the world. The Barren yes. Ground migrations, kind of like uh, Gnu's, you know, wildebeest in Africa. Africa. Yeah. So. Um, and then the yeah. wood, the wood, the mountain caribou are. Yeah. The mountain caribou here in the Columbia mountains are basically, you'd call them a behavior. They're not a separate subspecies of woodland. So woodland caribou is Rangifer tyrandus caribou. And, um, they are a, a behavioral ecotype, let's say. Okay. Yeah. Some people use the word adaptation. A lot of people are diving into the genetics. There's a lot of debate as to whether there's a, yeah, you know, a magical arboreal lichen feeding gene because they eat lichen on trees. Because mm -hmm. um, what but, we know as the mountain caribou in the southern populations, like here in the Columbia Mountains, yeah. typically like the smaller antlers where you get the mountain caribou, say in northern British Columbia and that are like in the Cassiar region, like yeah. those, those big bulls get very big. Yeah. yeah big so. bulls for sure. Yeah. Now did it, at least here in, in Canada were, I'm just sort of going way back in history. Did Car caribou cross the Bering land bridge? Yeah. And so were they here pre glaciation, like pre Laurentian, pre Wisconsin, and then pushed South and then 
ebbed back? Yeah. Or so they there was a relic group in the south, and there was a relic group in Beringia during the Pleistocene, the long, long million plus years glaciation, and then. Um, there was a, what people call like a hybrid swarm in the Rockies where, um, you know, the first, the first ice-free sort of areas formed uh, as we were sort of transitioning into the Holocene, the last 10,000 years. Um, so the, the caribou from the, the Beringian snow ice glacier-free area uh, during the long glaciation and the one south of the big ice sheets merged and there was what people call a bit of a hybrid swarm okay. right in right in the area of sort of jasper and yeah okay so there was okay. a remixing there in the rockies yeah in the yep. rockies yeah huh so um yeah they were there pre-pleistocene okay yeah okay yeah, yeah, I was doing doing a bit of research just kind of here, Revelstoke area, uh, in preparation of the podcast, and and some people will know, but <clears throat> I mean this this is where the the railroad came through um, that yeah. joined uh, you know the the Atlantic to to the Pacific eight eighteen eighty five or whatever, and I think it's just an hour east of here yeah, at Malakwa, Kugalaki near Malakwa, yeah. The last the famous last spike uh you know was driven and yeah. and um but I was also looking at um this particular area and the First Nations groups that were here. Mm-hmm. And the Columbia River was obviously a major you know major important you know factor probably tra- travel route in uh um, you know, this part of North America and Revelstoke is what they call the big bend of the Columbia. Yeah. So it's Cause where the Columbia it, it changes it, it directions. It's, a, it's from a, Columbia Lake. It's actually yeah. going North here, Revelstoke yeah. it actually makes the big bend and then it heads South, Southwest makes it run to, to, uh, the Pacific ocean. But, uh, but this, you know, if I, if I research this right, this particular area was, had an overlap of four, First Nations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. the 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 Siluk, the Sinex, um, Tanaha, and the um, uh, Sequekum. Yeah, Splats from Splatsin. Yeah, pr- probably pronounce those wrong, but um, mm-hmm. I, I always, you know, I was looking at that going, and and some of the other research that that I was looking at, like they're kind of talking about people being here, like during glaciation and immediately kind of afterwards. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm almost kind of thinking like, is it possible that, that they were here before the caribou? There was actually people witnessed the colonization of caribou into the, into the Columbia mountains. I mean, that would be a super interesting story to, to be told, but. I bet, I bet humans followed caribou. Okay. Yeah, that's my instinct. I don't know. I'm totally speculating, but yeah. I mean, when people came over the land bridge, um, yeah, there would have been, they would be following animals. They would have to. Yeah. You know. So. Um, and then yeah, and then kind of finding where the water, forest resources, and the wildlife yeah. kind of all, all overlap. Like and, this area is a very, very deep snow zone. So there are no doubt these four First Nations groups here, and no doubt there were there were definitely um, settlements found further south, very close further south here at Arrowhead, 
it would be almost impossible to survive winters just north of here. Okay. So up the bend towards Micah. I mean, you know, David Thompson came over Athabasca Pass, right, and came right through here, coming south from from Jasper, from the Rockies, and they starved. They had a hard time. They found a few moose at Bowdoin Encampment. Oh yeah. yeah, it was not an ungulate rich area. We are in a a deep deep snow belt, but just north of here in Wells Gray. Dale Sipe has the, the famous quote from Glenn Ward, you know, talking about caribou and, and their importance to First Nations people. It's massive. Here's, I love this quote from 1926. Thicker and thicker they came until the whole pass was a mass of moving mole gray forms from which a forest of branched antlers sprouted, clashing and clicking together as they pressed onward. For two hours and a half, we watched them passing us. It was impossible to count them. We could only guess at their hundreds. Wow. So that's not too long ago. I mean, that, you know, I think pe- people that know of caribou or are aware of them, these are the types of images you have when you think of Alaska and the Arctic and the yeah. Northwest Territories. And I mean, this is much farther, lower in latitude, right? Like yeah. it's, it's an amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the peak, there was a little ice age during this Holocene period that peaked in 1850 and then started to recede. Yes. And that's probably when caribou were the furthest, furthest south down Idaho, Washington, Montana. Um, and then back east, of course, they were in Vermont. And I don't remember the exact range on the eastern seaboard, but they were south as well. Um, and they must have peaked then when there would have been the fewest white-tailed deer, when there would have been the fewest fires and, uh, yeah, the least predators because there weren't many other ungulates. And then as the ice receded and the, the cold weather receded uh, post-1850, I mean, it's been warm for 10,000 years. When you go back 2 million years, it's been warm. But we had a cold period, um, yeah, called the Little Ice Age. And that must have been when caribou thrived. That's why you had these relic little herds in the Purcells and the Selkirks. Yeah. They were just like islands on mountaintops that persisted from that Little Ice Age. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when you think about this ungulate, and they're they're fairly big. I mean, you know, not big mm. as an elk or a moose, but mm-hmm. um, they're you know they're they're big. They lived in these big herds, used a lot of the landscape. So why why are they so vulnerable? Oh yeah, well oh, I, I mean like... they're they're the cervid, the deer species family that are the most domesticatable, right? They're they're tame. Uh, some people would say stupid. No, they just make a living the best that they have by by evolving in nutrient-poor habitats. They didn't evolve within meters of wolves like moose and deer did. Okay. Those guys evolved in close proximity to predators. Caribou had a totally different strategy of exploiting areas, exploiting areas where there were not predators, moving you know, migrating 2,000 kilometers to calve or living on mountaintops or living in, in bogs for boreal caribou. Right. So they didn't evolve head to head with a predator. Okay. So, um, yeah, the, but the world has changed. So that's, that's why, that's one reason you have to go back to their life history to ask why they're more vulnerable. And that's, and that's, that's a big part of that's it. That's a big part of it. They, they, they don't twin like moose do. They have an extra year or two compared to white-tailed deer before they can have their first young. 
when they become when a female becomes mature to to their to, their for aged get, first partrition yeah, yeah their okay. first baby their Intr- first calf interesting yeah yeah so um, basically the fancy word is fecund they're way less fecund than moose and deer and that's probably driven by living in nutrient, nutrient poor, poor exactly by eating lichen in the winter yeah lichen are not super rich they have a lot of carbs but not a lot of protein. Okay. So when a caribou comes out in the spring, you know, and it's it's just craving those fresh green succulent shoots of glacier lilies and those plants at that time of year are up in the 16, 17, 18% protein. And then they, they chill out as they develop more uh, solid material to stay standing. Wow. So the, the caribou, more than the other ungulates, have an ability to recycle their urea which is a building block of protein. So they recycle their urine internally a um, couple times to extract as much protein from the food they're eating as possible because they, they just have so little protein in these nutrient-poor habitats over the winter. Right. Yeah. But there's a whole other body of work by some colleagues, the Cooks, uh, John and Rachel Cook out of, um, out of uh, Idaho, Montana, I believe they, their main research institute is, and they've done a lot of work with elk, with captive elk and wild elk. And those guys point out that the, the fall, summer, fall nutrition is really important for all ungulates, but caribou as well. Yeah, it det- going determines um, fitness going into winter yeah. and um, yeah. uh, body weight of calves and survival of calves the next year all that kind of stuff so you know we can't always only get hung up on the uh, the lichen part of the equation which is their winter food um but you also have places with no lichen and really crummy food like on the slate islands in ontario but also no predators and caribou thrive there and when the predators do make it over well then it's it's game over when they swim over right yeah. So big picture here in British Columbia and Alberta, um, they are federally endangered in. Yeah, they're um, so there's 65 herds in BC and Alberta, 50, 50 something in BC and 14 ish or something like that in Alberta, different ranges. And uh, the boreal herds uh in northeast bc and alberta are listed as threatened federally now the cosiwic the committee on the status of endangered wildlife in canada the the sort of the independent committee from government um has recommended that the southern group in british columbia sort of from uh oh from let me think prince george south to the border a little bit north of prince george a little more north there yeah the 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 peace, some of the peace herds. There's a line there, but uh, yeah, the quintet Moberly coming all the way south. They have been recommended by Kosiwik to be officially listed as endangered, but the federal government has not signed off on that on yet. That. And it's been three years, maybe four, since Kosiwik made that recommendation. But the feds are probably nervous to sign off on it because once you do it triggers a whole bunch of actions. That's why there's those uh, sort of federal-provincial arrangements being made, those Section 11s. Yeah, what is kind of how I understand it is sort of, of the last steps to give the provincial governments 
a compromise to 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 f- to develop a comprehensive strategy yeah. and to see some see some recovery uh, be- before the Fed step in. So let's um let's kind of dive into you know why why they're the caribou are at this point. How did how did we how did they get into this situation? Mm. What are, what are the drivers? So yeah, well historically there's um obviously been overhunting right as 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 uh, as we settled the west as europeans settled the west um and as repeating rifles became available to first nations groups um you know there's a heavy human harvest pressure same with barren ground caribou sort of uh european and and first nations hunting play big roles um historically and presently up in the north um so um yeah, because you know. in Canada's early Dominion days, uh, you know, just prior to and at Confederation, uh, caribou in the north were were feeding um, markets, meat markets oh, yeah. in eastern Canada. Yeah. Like there was professional hunters going up and they were just... Oh, there were hundreds of thousands of them. to be limitless yeah. and yeah. feeding a growing population and a growing nation. And Yeah. So there's... And those populations naturally fluctuated like the George River herd which isn't barren ground they they're woodland but they behave like barren ground in Quebec they fluctuate naturally <clears throat> between 5000 to 500000 that's two orders of magnitude that's just oh. boggles my mind when i think of those fluctuations that have to do with food and climate and you know they deplete their lichen because there's so many of them then it takes decades for the lichen to replenish because they're so slow growing of course um, but yeah, I mean, there's, uh, the, these barren ground herds way in the Arctic that fluctuate. The question is, are they going to rebound because they're at lows now everywhere? So, um, and it's recognized this is at, at the federal meetings and at the, the North American conference in 2012 in Fort St. John, there's obviously a, a, a European component there, but also, uh, easier hunting and snowmobiling by first nations of overhunting. So yeah. that's not a secret. That's not anything controversial. I'm saying, um, and and it's it was openly discussed among all members. So that we got to get a handle on that up north that, for that sure. Part of it, yeah, yeah. And but down, yeah. Sorry, habitat started. Being yeah, habitat. So so there's there's this there's the definitely the hunting piece um, as uh, as the west was settled, which is just a story again and again for so many things for grizzly bear range retraction. Um, and uh, then, um, then there was a warming period, you know, the dirty 30s, the dust storms down in the Nebraska, and then we had more fires creeping in. And the early settlers would make comments like, wow, it's really weird. We see more mule deer moving into Wells Gray, and the caribou are going down, but they don't even eat the same thing. So why? So they started seeing, you know, more fires and more deer moving in, um, quote unquote, naturally. Um, but they, they didn't yet have the link. They couldn't figure out that there, it was this thing called apparent competition okay. where you get more deer and moose moving in, you get more predators, and then the caribou are bycatch, basically, because they're less fecund. It's two things. It's like I said, they're less fecund, yep. but they also are more naive in the face of, well, like when a predator runs into them, of course they'll be scared, but they won't be as good as getting away. They're their rate of escape once encountered is much lower than a moose or a deer. We yeah. have some weak information on that, but it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and I know from like 
my own experience and other hunters' experiences, like even in the open country of the north. Yeah. I mean, it's a strategy that if you have something like white or some movement on the landscape, or even if they see you, they'll actually come to you. Right. Because they're like, you know, oh, there's something over there. Maybe it's another caribou. I can yeah. have some friends. <laughs> and then they run they run right to you. So That's what I mean. They're the most domesticatable servant. Of course, the Sami people milk them and use them to pull pull things ride, and ride, pull, them. Yeah. ride them. They pull pull their gear, you know. A lab, Labrador retriever on, yeah. uh, on hooves. So you, got, you had a warming trend and then more deer were moving in, more predators and caribou were, were bycatch. And then, then, of course, the habitat piece came in. So, yeah, you big know, one big logging, logging, big logging, which also in some conditions, not all, probably less in the boreal, but certainly in the mountains, you get an eruption of forage. When you log, it depends on your spatial arrangement, how big your cut blocks are and all that stuff. But, um, you know, there's a reason we hunt deer and moose in cut blocks that are on the edges, yeah, right? So you're, you know. so you're moving old, old growth forests um, yeah. with less diversity in plants because they're at that old cereal stage climax stage yeah dark understories um supports you know like the lichens you re- you open that up and then nature takes over to start that succession pattern again yeah. you get the grasses the herbs the shrubs exactly and for ungulates uh and the change shrubs is the big driver right yeah shrubs is the big driver and you know it's this story is the easiest to explain in the interior of bc when it's a rainforest here you know, uh, we have four times the rain of Yellowstone or Banff or Edmonton. So um, there never were many fires. There never were uh, big eruptions of elk or moose um, because it's a stable old growth system. system. So when you open that up, man, you get that eruption. The caribou story is a little more difficult to explain in the boreal forest, which always would burn, you know, huge fires. And the best explanation I've got is that, you know, you'd get a big fire and then ungulates would move in, especially on the slight uplands, not in the wetlands, but slightly higher up on the boreal shield country. Um, And uh, on the shield, you'd get these fires and then um, ungulates and predators would move in and then caribou would probably be pushed out of those areas. They would get eaten and they would thrive somewhere else 500 miles away. And then they'd recolonize. So you had this source sink dynamic in the boreal. It's a little harder to explain. We don't understand it quite as well. But in the mountains of BC, we understand it fairly well. The linkages are stronger. You get a burn, you get logging, you get shrubs. We see the eruption of moose. Um, And then, then just the complicating factor, though, is there's just this natural progression of white tailed deer movement, especially in Alberta. Warmer winters, that's very well documented. Um, greater overwinter survival of, of the whiteies. And they're just moving. A, Dave Latham has a lovely study in, uh, in the oil sands region where, you know, um, there were few white-tailed deer, very few wolves. Caribou population growth was above one. So lambda was greater than one. That's a, a term that a lot of people in Alberta understand is... Um, if your lambda is 1.1, you're growing at 10% a year. You just multiply 100 animals by 1.1, by 1.1. By. So they had positive population growth. And then, boom, the whiteies moved in. Wolves increased. 
caribou lambda is below one they're declining fast um so it's it's this interconnection of logging and oil and gas development with this underlying climate shift and it's the real issue is that our main thrust research-wise is to try and tease apart the relative magnitude of climate versus human habitat alteration. And it's, that signal is going to be different in the BC mountains compared to the Alberta boreal. It's going to be a different strength for right, sure. Right. So the, so the, the, the ungulates, uh, like the whitetails and the moose and stuff, it just, just, it, clear for everybody it's not a direct competition of food that they're eating the caribou's food because yeah it's it, the predators it's, it's the predators they that share. are coming with they're following these exactly and as whitetail populations or moose populations increase life yeah. is good for a wolf yeah and um and then like you said the caribou become the yeah. bycatch yeah now let me ask you you're from cranbrook so whitetail are valued there and I want I want to know why, if I, if I can take the conversation this way, we don't yeah no that's, like that's because awesome. um, you know I'm I just again back from Europe we've got chronic wasting disease. Um, there's a hundred thousand whitetail that were brought in from the U.S. just south of Helsinki, you know, in Finland, um, and yeah, I mean they've got a huge problem in Europe with with uh, Lyme disease and ticks, mm-hmm. and I know whitetail aren't the main vector; they're a vector. Um, uh, mice are a bigger vector like and so we've got chronic wasting disease in whitetail 60 kilometers in saskatchewan away from caribou ranges you know the brain wasting like why are we tolerating also have don't they have a brain parasite that they they can pass to moose exactly yeah and and whitetail may be partially responsible for the troubles we're seeing with mule deer right and hugh robinson documented that like let why don't we value mule deer and moose and elk over like why why can't we just eradicate whitetail? Yeah, that's that's like an in, a, interesting one. Um, yeah, so I w- won't necessarily maybe put this in from my perspective. I'll try to like collectively kind of maybe paint at least like how the hunting community views you because views this because that was your question, right? Yeah. So. I mean, that, the first part, one of the things hunters don't like is when we talk about eradication. Yes. Yeah. Of a game species. Yeah, of, yeah. of a game species yeah. or, you know, or, or, or any species. I mean, I'm, I'm being than, a little bit yeah, uh, no, I, edgy I here on purpose. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there are those that are sort of like, I'll eradicate wolves and grow, grow uh, horns and antlers, right? Yeah. So there's, there's that, um, we'll say that's, that's a, you know, a smaller uh, part of it, but I think for hunters, um, so, so one, they like to, you know, believe, uh, what they're involved in is based on conservation and conservation sure. is about maintaining or increasing populations, not eradicating things. So mm-hmm. they even have that, like, you know, in the Southern U S where they have the problems with the wild hogs, it's like, it's an eradication thing, but it's like, they're fun to hunt and they taste <laughs> yeah. good and stuff. Yeah. And so you actually get a hunting culture that wants to keep them on the landscape, even though, so, so it's a similar thing. I think with whitetails, a few things going on is at the end of the day, hunters want something to hunt and they want to have meat in the freezer Yeah, and whitetails are as good as any game out there. Um, it's, it's 
good tasting meat. They're abundant on the landscape. There's places, you know, uh, where you can have more than one species tag um, because yeah. they are a bit smaller. So you get to hunt more yeah. and you get to put a bit more in the freezer, um, you know, like, you know, two white-tailed deer versus one of something else. Yeah, there were two does in the Kootenays here for yeah, a while for, and they scaled back. And, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, that, that whole, uh, that whole thing again is, is hunters being concerned about, um, you know, harvesting females. Uh, there's another component, I believe, um, the love for whitetails. So there's that part, there's something to hunt. They're fairly abundant. They're growing, they're expanding, they're showing up in places, they're creating the hunting opportunity, which hunters want. They are an iconic borderline godlike species in the eastern United States. Definitely. So Virginia. Yeah. yeah, yeah I even, mean, it's yeah. like, I, I even, I, I read this article one time that said, um, they've looked at hunting magazines that are on the magazine shelves and they track like their monthly sales. Yeah. As soon as a month issue comes out and the cover photo is of a big white tail buck, buck, sales of that magazine go through the roof. Oh, they're attractive as so, heck. Yeah. So I love, I love, yeah. Animals, yeah. You know, and, and they're fun to hunt. They're challenging all that. And mm-hmm. they, they taste good. So, so anyways, there's that, that, culture in the eastern united states of that revolve around white-tailed deer and white-tailed deer hunting like it's it's a really big culture there and as quote-unquote the hunting industry grew we got magazines we got television shows they're so big in the united states they're really able to control like the message in north america like what's being put out there and it was basically if you were a hunter and you were following this stuff it's like whitetail hunting is where it's at. Right. And so Canada kind of followed suit. They yeah. adopted it. We're way out here in British Columbia yeah. as far away. So that from ethic is rubbed get. off so here. Sort of yeah. Like, um, I, like I love turkey hunting. Turkey mm-hmm. Turkeys are considered non-native here in British Columbia. And I've fallen in love with turkey hunting and I love to cook them and I love to hunt them. But it's like... Uh, it, that's all been borrowed from the U.S.'s love right. of turkey hunting and yeah. the knowledge to allow me to be successful. Mm. So, so here we have kind of these kind of dynamics. Hunters yeah. want something to hunt. You know, the whole culture on whitetails, and they're attached to them now. And and I know in places in the West Kootenays where they took a very aggressive stance to reducing whitetails because of the caribou mm-hmm. like that does not sit well with people nor does like the um you know the management work that you're involved in in the reducing moose the piece. moose yeah. you know yeah. here here north of revelstoke it's it's hunters like something to hunt and when they finally have a species that's abundant um your success goes up and you have meat in your freezer and then here we come along and say yeah. yeah okay we need to reduce these to increase something that you can't hunt and probably never will be able to hunt again right, right. so it's uh yeah no i get that i mean i'm sure we'll talk about the moose piece soon that's a much more difficult question um and you no know, i and i totally value that perspective i mean i hunt whitetail i i, I like it uh but um it's choices. It's, it's what you choi- said right yeah. in the beginning the toughest part of this is 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 trade-offs to make yeah. these trade-offs yeah, yeah. Again, though, I mean, we all want to be conservationists, but there's evidence that whitetail can, not moose, not moose, 
but whitetail can affect the conservation of other game species that we value, like mm-hmm. mule deer. Mm-hmm. Like, Definitely. Yeah, because they they bring about cougars, they bring about disease. They, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a tough one. And uh, I mean, I've spoken. I know at one point I wouldn't quote it now, but north of Revelstoke, going up, where the first whitetail were only seen. In the 1960s, that's the first record yeah. of whitetail. Yeah. And we interviewed everybody, yeah. all the old yeah. timers here. Yeah. That was kind Even, of a standing joke with a couple of good buddies of mine is that, you know, we get hunters talk about, you know, we got this doe season, you know, which you yeah. mentioned. And now all of a sudden there's no whitetails on the landscape. Yeah. Like they're being driven, they're disappearing, they can't find them and stuff. And, and um, so, you know, they're, they're um, concerned uh, you know, about, about that. So. No, that, that makes sense. I, you know, it's, um, but, but, uh, yeah. yeah that, so the other part of that is, but like you said, you go back to the sixties and it's like, it, Oh, it's it was a new thing. A, it was, so so no, there was, uh, <laughs> with our local rod and gum club, I don't know if it would be the current sentiment, but before, like about 10 years ago, they were sit fine. Liberalize as heck North of highway one because we know they're a new thing and if it helps caribou a bit and you know there was even talk of a february hunt you know but that's that came off the table but you know if we could manage we have to manage by zone we manage for whitetail xy yeah of course you know cranbrook keep the whitetail as abundant as we can but in areas with direct conflict with caribou mm-hmm. even the local club was some members, I remember, they're like, okay, that's fine. You could, you know, change the management there. And the key thing is I'm not a manager. I'm a researcher. I don't make the decisions. But it's fun to talk about yeah. anyway where yeah. there's direct yeah. overlap. And we don't want we don't want brainworm getting here. We don't want CWD, the, the, the chronic wasting disease yeah, getting absolutely. here. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Know? No, that, that is a tough, tough question um, to, to grapple with, you know, yeah. especially, especially for the hunting community, probably an easier one to grapple with for non-hunters, yep. uh, non-hunter conservationists. They could probably buy into that one, maybe more so. Not than, even. Than the <laughs> <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. But, but um, uh, you know, we do, the main message that w- we're working on now with government colleagues, and this is a key one, and it's hard. It's It's hard to fathom. But there's areas where wolves are being reduced to recover caribou. And this is a brand new thing in British Columbia for an endangered species. It's not like the work in the Musqua back in the 80s. Um, This is new. It's been going on in Alberta for a long time. But in BC, we focused on habitat protection. We protected, the government protected 22,000 square kilometers of old growth, which should not be trivialized. And when uh, when certain groups or angles say, hey, nothing's been protected, I almost get offended. It's like we were in the trenches in the 90s. We were there at the land use meetings, you know, really digging in, like, uh, you know, peeling back the onion and like, you know, and, and a lot of habitat of THLB, timber harvest land base that would, would have been logged, got protected. And we cannot trivialize that. Yep. So, um you know, with, uh, I am trying to figure out the degree of win-win in these areas where wolves are being reduced to recover caribou. So in the piece, so Quintet, Burnt Pine, West Mobe, Kennedy Siding, um, and then just even more recently right here in Revelstoke, 
there is the potential for win-wins where the wolf reduction is going on, but we, we want to call the moose stabilization zones, not moose reduction zones, but keeping the moose more or less stable in these areas where wolves are being reduced, these relatively small areas of the province. These are where the win-wins. Wolves coming down, caribou lambda, cam, caribou growth is increasing. We have six herds that are increasing, and most people don't know that now. Um, and get your moose while they're hot, basically. Yeah. There will be big bulls recruited. The calf-cow ratio right here in Revelstoke two like, years ago was like 64, s- like yeah. off the charts, 64 yeah. per 100. And uh, they just grew 20% in number this last year. And then this this March, um, Aaron Reed and, and Dave Lewis did the census, and, uh, and uh, it was at 45 calves per 100. So... These are the win-wins where guide outfitters should be able to have a win-win. Local residents should have a win-win. And there aren't many win-wins in caribou management. There are not. But yeah. this is one this where... Is one. And I haven't got the numbers or the math straight um, because it's not very frequent where moose were intentionally reduced and then stabilized. Um, and then a wolf, wolf reduction lever went on top of that. But um, yeah... There is potential for huge win-win. And here's another piece I'd like, I'd like folks to consider. The forest was heavily logged in the 80s. You had a lot of forage. Then the caribou forest protection measures came in. And when you look at the maps, and I can show you and you can direct your listeners to them, there is now the, there's now more forest growing up than burning or being logged. So there's more f- forest transitioning from shrubs to canopy forest then is what being is what being is what is being logged. In other words, the moose habitat is coming offline. So it could be that we made hay while the sun was shining and got more moose than we had we managed under a classic MSY maximum sustained yield scenario because the carrying capacity was coming down real quick. Yeah. The forest is transitioning. There would have been a collapse in the moose population. Possibly. I'm speculating, but we can, we're starting to run some numbers to say maybe from 2003 to 2015, when a lot of moose tags went out there, we actually did better from a recreation and guide outfitting perspective than had we not gone that route. The moose would have come down anyway. Yeah. So, so, so there was some, um, I don't know, some people don't like this idea, but humans were able to capture some of that mortality. I think we did. And I think we did feed people, keep people, feed people, organic, herbicide free, pesticide free, (laughs) you know, the best way to eat. Right. So, so, I mean, the, the message here is you're talking about part of this, um, effort is stabilizing moose populations, which is stabilizing wolves which is causing some benefit for caribou. For the caribou, yeah. yeah. Because if we just do the wolf piece, we will have an eruption in moose, maybe a spread of things we would rather not see in these areas, a rapid spread of white-tailed deer, because white-tailed deer are right on the edge of their range right here. Yeah. I mean, they're in a, at this micro scale. I mean, they're popping up in Alaska. They're popping up in Northwest Territories, but right here. So if we just ignore this this all this primary prey piece and only focus on wolves will have this eruption and one day when wolf control 
gets eliminated for political reasons and it will i mean i'm I, you know it, it will not last forever mm-hmm. and nor probably should it unless we simultaneously hit the habitat piece as well that seems to be the big thing in the conversations right now is people uh it, like there's people that are opposed to the the wolf control yeah. um measures <clears throat> um just because of emotional reasons, right? Like, I mean, we're literally Ethics. just like killing these animals. Ethics and, and values, so, yeah. You know, and we look at the history of these animals in the of wolves in the world. They are persecuted animal, right? Yeah. Um, we poisoned them. We actually poisoned them in from nineteen oh six to nineteen sixty in the late mid early sixties. Yeah, we had the predator control branch, right? Not officially this year, okay. but they they but were they using uh, yeah they yeah. were using chemicals yeah. highly so, controversial. So you, you got this animal that's been been treated like that. Now we need to come along and sort of let's say we have a legitimate scientific rationale for having to address them, but we have this legacy of human history of how we did treat them for reasons that are being you know shown you know, not necessarily to be valuable now, you know, livestock depredation and, and you know, game eat, increase, eat your, yeah, game increase, yeah, eat, eat yeah. your children on the way to school. All, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, so, well, it was yeah, fascinating it's, it's in Norway, fascinating. Like there are sheep, domestic sheep everywhere. Our first train ride from Lillehammer to Bergen to the West coast. I'm looking around like, oh my gosh, there's little white dots everywhere. <laughs> and if wolves, I mean, in Norway, this is a half joke. They're allowed 71 wolves in the country. Yes. X number of packs. I can't remember, like 10 packs or something. And if there's more, they're shot. So they manage exactly about 70-ish wolves. Um, and on a Wednesday night, about two and a half months ago, there were 10,000 people who came to Oslo. They flew in and bust in 10,000 people to protest that there were too many wolves in the country. 10,000 people. Wow. So it's a very similar issue at that level. And uh, yeah, it's just this entrenched sheep thing, right? Sheep farmers. Whereas someone did the math where you could pay all the sheep people to move to Spain or live in Spain and put them up in villas and it would cost the country less. Than, <laughs> I mean, it's like a hobby farm, right? It's, yeah. it's cultural. You yeah. need sheep. Um, and the sheep do feed people, no question. No. Yep. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, if wolves ever really recall, because they're coming back from Russia, Finland to Sweden, yeah. all the way west to Norway. And if they ever really came, it would take a month and there'd be no sheep left. <laughs> they're yeah, just I, sitting there. It's hilarious. I, I have a buddy in... Uh, is living in France right now, uh, way in this little tiny, little tiny town, way up in the Alps, and same thing, pastoral yeah. lands in the Alpine sheep, and they have two wolves now that are right on the outskirts of town, and people are like, oh my god, like this sheep farmer is like ninety something years old, and he's like, what, what am I gonna do? So, yeah, and it's just horf- horrific to these people because they never grew up with wolves, yeah. right? But. but <laughs> For, for caribou conservation and recovery, like the science is telling us that it's an important lever. It, if not society wants, yeah. But, but, but mm. it's a lever, it's working. When it is used, caribou recovery shows positive response. You said even like it's not a long-term thing. It, it is. Um, 
the other part of it I think that's controversial is, and maybe you can weigh in on this, is that there's the discussion around the wolf control piece. The media likes to zero in on that message, and I've seen some of your you know, work that you've done, recent stuff, and it's like they zero in on that part, and they're missing the message that it, it's it's these multiple levers together of which, you know, the, the wolf is one piece. <laughs> and then people the next day see these news articles about wolves must being die. approved yeah. in caribou habitat oh, for yeah. like 300 more cut blocks and this yeah. sort of stuff. And they're like, if you, we're not going to tolerate you doing this to the wolves if you're going to continue to log the habitat. And it's absolutely it, there's some really confusing messages out there right now. Really confusing. And you, you, you wish people would just tell the truth all the time, then it would be a lot less confusing. Um, it would be a lot less confusing. Every aspect of life. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we all have agendas, you know, even though we like to pretend we don't, I mean, we all have agendas, everyone's got an agenda, but, uh, the, yeah, I mean, one-on-one I've spoken to people who are adamantly against wolf reductions, but then when I explain, well, then the 22,000 hectares of old growth will be more likely to go back on the chopping block and caribou will go extinct unless we can do some short-term predator reductions. Um, people come around when they understand that in some areas, in some areas, the habitat is also being protected. And I'm like, I'm like everybody else. If, if, if the wolf management is the only lever being pulled, well, well, no, I mean, what's, uh, what's the point? then just let caribou go extinct and uh, we move on. We could have lots of moose, lots of heli skiing, lots of snowmobiling, lots of wolves with no caribou on the landscape and it would be a thriving yeah. ecosystem, right? Yeah. Um, but if, the, but if yeah, the, you, the caribou don't have the landscape that they need, the habitat that they need, then like you're just saying like wolf control in itself is yeah, waste. It, yeah. It's, yeah, if you're just going on indefinitely with the wolf reduction, it's, uh, you know, what's the point? And, um, yeah, we've, we've shown in the recent paper in March, probably it's probably the biggest predator prey, uh, study ever done in the world. Um, and we've shown that it can, it can work for caribou in the short term, but throughout the paper, we stress habitat, 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 especially in the beginning and in the last paragraph. And, um, and, you know, the paper goes through rigorous peer review and we had a peer reviewer, um, and she was awesome. She said, look, I buy all this. Um, but how long are you going to have to do this for Not a science question. It's an ethics question and you don't have to comment on it, but we did. And we did a quick little analysis that we're going to build on in the future. I, I need a student or a postdoc or somebody to, to help me with this. But, um, we looked at the 18 caribou herds that we looked at, and in, in five of them, there is more forest gain than forest loss. In the other 13, there's more loss, like in the Alberta herds and the Quintet up north, there's more forest being logged than coming back. Okay. Um, so that means wolf control forever, and unless that trend changes, unless you move the needle on the forest piece. But in the southern areas where that 22,000 square kilometers was protected, and that had economic impacts right here in Revelstoke, but look around, Revelstoke's still thriving. So even though a certain percent of the forest has been shut down to logging, and it has been since the mid-90s, 
it's still a thriving town. Look at all the mountain bikes out there. There's still forestry workers. The Downey Mill imports 50 to 70% of its cedar from the coast. You know, it's still thriving. Um, so you can, you can still make it work. But the, yeah, there, you know, it's this short-term, long-term piece. If you're just doing the, the wolf piece without the habitat, that is going to have a limited shelf life. And yeah. people can spin our paper any way they want. And it's an easy read. I encourage your listeners to, yeah, to we'll, read it. We'll get, the, we'll get the link up for it. Yeah. The article yeah, in the show notes. Great. Yeah. It's, it's um, you know, we, we stress habitat throughout, but like you said in the media article, the day after the day of that thing, and I, I probably made a few mistakes in my wording from day one, but one of the headlines was, uh, you know, wolves must die to save caribou. And my friends were joking, nature must be destroyed to save caribou. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. And then there was another one that came out in order to save caribou, shoot more moose or whatever. Yeah, just, that was two years ago. So yeah, the black and white kind of binary. Is such, yeah. You're dealing with such a complex system. It's like, it's so frustrating when those things come out and because then it, it sets it sets off the social discussions right yeah you know it immediately becomes um you know uh wolf control or caribou it's either or um yeah and the guys up north who were yelling at the meetings like 500 wolves or 500 jobs yeah that was another media headline that was another media and you know what i hate to say it but in a way they're right in in an in a naive simplistic way those guys are right like at the end of the day, you know, it does come to a trade-off. And the more forest you protect, the less predator-prey management tinkering you'll have to do. It's a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. Maybe we shouldn't think of it so directly. Maybe, you know, maybe we can employ thousands of forest workers to restore the habitat in the West Moberly herd. So maybe there are win-wins, right? You employ these folks to restore the lines, restore the cut blocks, but restoration is expensive. Um, as Fred Bennell said, it's easier to protect than restore. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, now I just want to go back to kind of the, the logging thing, because this is this gets picked up a lot in the media, and, mm. and I think it's confusing for people. But so originally, at least here in British Columbia, I'm not sure how it was done in Alberta, Um when the discussions were happening back in the 80s and 90s, like for the protected areas that you were talking about for caribou, um, there were the, the core areas. The biologists said, okay, this is caribou habitat. This is where they're living. This is the best of our knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, they drew these lines around these big areas. From my understanding, then the forest industry said to the province, we can't live with that large of the land base disappear. So they negotiated down. Oh yeah, sure. They, so I mean, core areas are protected, and then <clears> what people are talking about these buffer areas, which was still caribou habitat that there was logging in. Yeah, I mean the history goes back even before that to uh, more or less the uh, the the late nineteen eighties, and I'm just gonna gonna check that here for a second, but um, basically. In the late 80s, I, or yeah, there was that World Commission on Environment and Development, the Brundtland Commission report from mm -hmm. the Norwegian uh, Gro Harlem yep. Brundtland. And 
um, they came out with a recommendation of 12% of, of the protected, protected areas, yeah. which, which so, got into the provincial core process. So here, yeah, the called, NDP yeah. Um, in 1991, and I'm now I'm stretching my memory, but they actively campaigned on 12%, going from 6 to 12. So that set off the core process and all the land use planning. So basically negotiations. Yep. And then... That kind of hit, Revelstoke and Blue River areas are the, the most potentially impacted from anywhere in the province. Then, and that's maybe why, we, why I live in Revelstoke, to help, to help the forestry industry, to help the caribou, because this is where the rubber hits the road. This okay. is the hot spot. Um, and that's because the caribou come low twice a year here, whereas elsewhere the caribou stay higher in the mountains. So the caribou live right amongst these 500-year-old cedar trees. So the value conflict is the biggest here. So um, the timber supply guys were looking at this and saying, wow, we already have a fall down from this core process. And we have a, I can't remember the X percent reduction in cut coming down the pipe from sort of south of Revelstoke, going up the North Thompson, up to Blue River, up to Vailmount. And um, so what do we do? We're going to have a fur. This is, there is like a 12% reduction in cut predicted without the new caribou stuff coming online. So they formed a special committee here from the minister, from the provincial minister called the MAC committee, um, the minister's advisory committee. Mm. And there was a lot of negotiation. So they drew out the winter caribou habitat, which had the biggest overlap with Summer caribou habitat, you know, yeah, there's there's potential conflict with resource extraction, but the big part of it is the winter. And um, they drew the lines, and the rules that came up here were 40%. So protect 40% of the old growth for caribou. The THLB, the timber harvest old growth, so what would otherwise be logged. Not the steep, scraggly old growth, but the good old growth. So you had to protect 40%. Um, and that obviously affected the AAC, the annual allowable cut, the harvest of wood. Um, and there was the meeting in 1995 at the at the community center here. It was 400 forestry workers, you know, mm. um, uncertain upset, uh, scared, angry, right? Everything like, where's our jobs, you know? And, uh, and there were, you know, four or five government people at the front, including a high end researcher, my mentor, uh, Bruce McClellan and yeah. And other experienced, uh, land use folks. And, um, yeah. So the, yeah, the, the, those rules came out and that was, that was a compromise because you couldn't, you, they didn't protect everything. Like the most precautionary approach would have been to protect all the core habitat for caribou, but that would have closed down. Um, yeah, that would have closed down several logging companies and unemployed mm. many people. Communities. Then the next phase was in 2005, the land use stuff heated up again. Um, Populations continued to decline. There was still no predator reductions going on in British Columbia for caribou. So another phase. And just here alone, there was another 10,000 hectares of THLB protected, although some of it overlapped with existing old growth protection. So maybe it w the net protection was maybe 8,000 hectares of old growth 
um, somewhere around there. So that added further constraints to logging, further protection for caribou. Um, and now we're phasing round, we're facing round three, except in the room, it's not 400 loggers, you know, yelling at the front. It's all the new agers too, right? The, the, um, the hipsters, the mountain bikers, uncertain, the heli ski, the snowmobiling, huge heli ski industry, here. huge heli, yep. 80, you know, 80 plus families reliant on it, on the, uh, on the industry. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a mess. And unfortunately this uncertainty of this last round of meetings was probably caused by the cart going before the horse. The section 11s basically say, when you read them, it says something might happen. We might have further restrictions or we might, no one's talking about closing down the backcountry yeah. to mountain biking so or the, more snowmobiling. For listeners, so the section 11 is the agreements, um, the plans, caribou recovery plans, uh, that the provincial government is now developing that have gone through a public consultation process, which is their their chance to lay out a caribou recovery strategy to satisfy the federal government that the province is taking sufficient action to recover the caribou. So the federal government will essentially, if they're happy, hold off an emergency order correct under the under the federal species yeah, at it's risk it's because right? if it, and nobody want you know an emergency order would would be the sledgehammer yeah then the federal government could be talking about big areas even going back to traditional caribou habitat even if they're not there now drawing lines around those areas and saying industries out yeah those types of things so that that's yeah that's the big hammer that you're talking about. That's, that's the that's, sledgehammer, yeah. yeah. And to correct something I said earlier, I now found it. It's like the the uh, the local area here, the North Selkirks, the Columbia Mountains, were facing a 17% reduction in cut, not a 12%. Okay. Before yep. the caribou constraints. So there were big socioeconomic things going on. So let's say not cart before the horse to do things properly and, you know, rather than getting everything, everybody freaked out, like in the last meetings that happened, you know, and again, this is 20 years later, we've seen this all before. Like my credit, my colleagues saw this in the nineties. This would have been a perfect world approach. You have the science, the science is largely done. We know it's mostly a political process. Now let's say the science says, okay, area here, this 10 by 10 kilometer area, um, should have a reduction in forestry. Let's just say, and I'm just, randomly i'm just picking an example what is that going to cost how many jobs is that going to cost and what's the dollar cost so that's the socioeconomic analysis that has not been done well it was done actually in the 90s and in the mid 2000 processes those last two things i talked about but it hasn't been done in modern times again what's that going to cost okay, let's develop options now, trade-offs. Not the scientists, but maybe by scientists being consulted, but the managers, the decision makers. Option A, you close the forest, and then every year you maybe only have to take out five wolves. Option B, you have more forestry allowed, but you have to take out 10 wolves and certain moose. Option C, you don't put any further forestry restrictions out there, but you take out more wolves. 
those would be, I'm oversimplifying, yep. but those would be the trade-offs based on the economic analysis I just talked and about. Then, and, and then the you read... would be the base case, which is yeah, no change no in change anything. no change in anything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and then, yeah, then you compare that to the absolute cost that I said just before. And then you go to the public with some options. And maybe not in a town hall forum where it's just mayhem. You present information in a much more clear, succinct, and less vague manner. And I don't mean that to be critical. You know, many of my colleagues uh, in government agree. Like, you know, they had to be vague because of the, the handcuffs that were given. They had to. You know, they did the best they could by far. They did a great job. But they when you go in with more specifics about population numbers and trade of the trade-offs I just described, then you can get a more clear answer from the public. Yeah. Yeah. Then it comes to the federal and provincial bureaucrats to advise the ministers and MLAs on what course of action to take. So that's that three or four step process I just described is way more um, palatable than the cart before the horse of just creating uncertainty and still, you know, stewing panic. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Like there wasn't this type of these last public um, consultations that, that just wound up, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, that information wasn't on the table and it wasn't there long enough for community groups and citizens and stuff to, to look at this digest it, ask some questions, educate themselves, be informed, and then move forward to to these types of discussions. Yeah. So yeah, it, you know, definitely the cart was thrown out there, um, <laughs> you know, right, right away. And then, I mean, and then all this, all this rhetoric kind of like, yeah. you know, uh, you know, flew up. And we, it's funny when you talk about like the socioeconomic uh, stuff hasn't been done, what always... It's kind of interesting, I guess, is that as soon as these discussions come up, industry itself always knows exactly how many jobs something's going to cost, right? Yeah. So the, 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 when the discussions first started to happen up north, it was like immediately in Chetland, it was like 500 jobs. Yeah, like, 500 like, jobs we, gone, we yeah. We know that. There's some, somebody that sits there right. and goes, what are all these possible scenarios, that, like an accountant, and like have these numbers just yeah. right, you know, ready to go. Um, but if there's a compromise, and then if involving the locals in the decision-making and involving locals in the, the habitat restoration or whatever, you know, uh, just just like the, the stellar case of of the West Moberly and the Soto First Nation where they said they went to Scott McNay and they said look what can we do for this herd we want to drive this and they've done a great job absolutely and you know they they are involved in the predator removal they are involved in the maternity penning and they are involved in the linear feature restoration and so they're hitting all the trophic levels the vegetation the predator prey the the the, uh, the prey and the caribou yeah so um you know they've doubled that size of that herd in three short years um and uh you know and the question is you know can we involve other groups in these other herds as well can yeah. we involve local guide outfitters can we involve trappers can we involve forest workers I think we have to, but that's just me. I'm not a, I'm not a manager. Yeah. And it, it's important to stress something you just said, because the agreements with the two nations up north uh, is really what set off a, some really tense things in, in northern BC, is, is they put up their hand and said to the province, we would like to be involved in helping with this caribou recovery. 
And then what happened? Well, well, then, you know, they, they put up their head and they wanted to be part yeah. of it. They wanted yeah. to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, of course, you know, it's like, great, let's, yeah. let's, let's get a recovery plan built around, um, that type of, uh, non-government leadership. Yeah. Um, first nations government leadership and then the rest of society kind of like freaked out over this yeah. right like they they kind of saw this as you know the whole backdoor broom stuff all that kind of stuff right yeah, and I, yeah. I, I, want, I think this is really important like it that these that this be pointed out that these are people that said we want to help and they're willing to actually do some real yeah, things. And maybe and they feel like they've it. been ignored, you and, know, and, and yeah. I think if, if, you know, trappers guide outfitters, the forest industry wants to be involved, like you said, it's like, you got to put up your hand and say, you know, we want to be part of this voluntarily yeah. because we care about it as, as opposed to being mandated yeah. to, to do it. So, so, I mean, I don't work in, in that part of the world on the ground. Um, um, I mean, I use the caribou and wolf data for sure, but I'm not involved in the local partnerships. But yeah, I mean, my my instinct would be just keep building those. Like let's Absolutely. let's let's work on that. And but at the same time, we shouldn't slight the two First Nations bands for taking the leadership. They started this five six years ago. Yeah, and that's that's so, that's the key message there. Yeah. Is is, uh, is they got involved. Yeah, they and, took the bull by the horns yeah, and, absolutely. and got the right people in the room, the right scientists like uh, Scott and Wildlife Infometrics, his company, and, and, and the government folks, Chris Addison, and, you know, got yeah, everybody it's, on board. It, it's, it's a good thing, and I, I really hope um, that model uh, becomes successful and, and provides some certainty and, and some results, absolutely. Now... There's an interesting point I want to I see in my notes here when I get to at what point when these populations are declining and we're pulling levers and they keep declining, when does a herd, when does a subpopulation reach a point where there is no coming back? Yeah. So this is a huge issue and I'm a little bit... Um uh, at odds with the instinct of, of folks on this with, with maybe some of my colleagues, people want an answer of like a minimum population size where you just write them off. Okay. Because it's, you call it triage where you just prioritize and write off a herd. I think that's totally the wrong criteria. And, uh, and and the wrong criteria is X, X X numbers. Yeah. It's the wrong idea because the proofs in the pudding, McNay and the, the, the West Moberly and Soto just proved that idea wrong. They were down to 32 total animals with, I don't know how many adult female caribou, maybe let's just guess 20-ish or 18 or something. And they, they penned them, they reduced the, the, uh, the First Nations reduced the wolves like they've always you know traditionally done in an intensive area around the pen. And then the government supplemented that, um, that action. And the herd doubled, you know, uh, they doubled um, and they're over 70. Now they're not recovered because recovery means habitat restoration, all that. So it's not the definition of recovery. They're not self-sustaining, but they, the population turned around, which is unprecedented. We've got five or six herds like that in BC now that are doing that. And it's unprecedented. You have the bighorn, uh, the, the sheep example, um, with cougars in the United States where they did a similar uh, program 
Um, and that is, there are very few examples of turning around a large mammal that got to such a low number. Yeah. So I don't like the number piece because it's not logical. It does it's not defendable. Okay. The other criteria that I think is way more defendable is in the herd range and surrounding the herd, how much land has been permanently converted. So how much land has been permanently converted to human settlement and agriculture and wineries and whatever else grows white-tailed deer <laughs> with a per like agriculture yeah. equals white-tailed deer and and that equals cats right it equals cougars some wolves um that to me is a much stronger criteria because you're never going to go back whereas you look north of revelstoke it has been heavily logged but there's no settlement and the forest is coming back when you look at at the satellite imagery the rate of gain is higher than the rate of loss more or less um, the West Moberly Soto herd, the, the Clenziza herd, it is, it has been nuked. It's been heavily, heavily harvested the habitat, but that herd doubled and now they're working on the vegetation part. Um, and so you, you would have written off those, that herd with a numerical, with a, with a minimum number criteria. Now they're fixing the habitat, but there is the key point is north of Revelstoke and in the Clinziza area, there's no permanent settlement. There's no agriculture. There's no huge farms and homesteads and, and villages, you know, so the habitat can come back, but down by Cranbrook and Kimberley, I mean, just drive around and look at what's in the fields there. Yeah. So that's permanent white-tailed deer habitat. So those are the herds. If you're going to let go, those are the ones to let go because it just, unfortunately, it's very hard to say this, but it just, you will be in a predator reduction game there forever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, this all comes down, it's less science, it's more human values. If people want to do that, then go for it if they want to manage predators forever, but it will be harder and it will waste more money and waste more political energy down there because it's so such a large amount of land conversion. So I think that's our criteria. And we could build a curve okay. with land conversion on the x-axis and probability of extinction on the y-axis and just figure out where we want to draw that line. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely um, makes much more sense than just you know, a 20 animals, 30 yeah. animals, you, you can get into, you know, I've seen things where like they say, like with elk anyways, <clears throat> if you have, um, you get calf recruitment drops below, like, I think it's like 14 calves per hundred cows uh -huh. there that you're sort of, you're considered like the death spiral. Yeah. Like yeah, just no matter sure. what you do, that herd can no longer, you know, recover and it'll go out of existence where yeah. I've seen a case study in Idaho, I think it was, um, where they, with the help of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in the U S they did some cougar control yeah. uh, and they brought, uh, recovered elk herds that their calf recruitment was like nine per hundred. Right. Uh, you know, right they brought right, them back. Right, so, right. so uh, even that in itself, just a number, a, a, you know, calves per hundred cows is still not, you, you can't just draw a line. Well, and no, say, cause well, you've right, got the other, cause the other know. half of the equation there is the other half of the story is the adult survival. So if your adult survival is low too, and if you don't have the same thing, same reason that adults aren't surviving versus calves, like you could have one predator, 
eating adults and bears eating the calves, but bears don't usually take adults, you might be missing the mark. So yeah. rules of thumb are tricky. I <laughs> try and guide away for rules of thumb. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Now here's, you know, so, so two things. I mean, one back to the Cranbrook area in Southeastern mm. British Columbia, when we were at the, um, the public consultation meeting for the caribou recovery strategy in, in Cranbrook, like a lot of, you know, locals came out, um, a lot of hunters there and stuff. And a lot of the discussion was around, I mean, one was the criticism that you're kind of starting all those 50 years too late. Mm. The other one was about this trade-off piece because that's a part of the province where a substantial number of like the big game species anyways are declining. You know, our elk herds are 50% of what they were over the last 10 years. Moose herds are 50% over the last, you know, uh, 10 years. Mule deer numbers are down, never recovered from the big, um, the big 97, winters, 96, 97. 97 yeah. um, some are saying, you know, whitetail populations are down uh, in areas. <clears throat> Bighorn sheep herds are, you know, the Bull River herd close to where I live, like 40 or 45% of that herd disappeared from one winter to the next with no explanation. And so these, these folks are sitting in this meeting and we're talking about this caribou recovery process and, you know, the money that's involved, the trade-offs are involved, you know, the, 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 the fear of access to the backcountry, And they're saying like, Hey, what about all these other species? Right. And Fair you enough. Know, I was even talking about like, like people are, sort of criticizing the single species approach yeah you know so we could spend all this effort on on caribou at the sacrifice of not having the science and the money to be put into you know bighorn sheep or elk herd recovery and you know and then all of a sudden 10 years down the road we've got more species on on this list and yeah i mean there is a strange reduction in our big ungulates all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's um, something's going on, and I wouldn't I wouldn't put the the um, blame squarely on predators, but we are in a phase of um, you know predator populations recovering in general. That's not a secret. You know we have more grizzly bears thirty years ago in most of our areas in the Flathead. The 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 population growth rate was eight percent a year for the better part of thirty years. Um we've had some some take back of that a bit in the Elk Valley and such with grizzly bears, but in many areas we've had recovering bear populations. Um wolves are more abundant, but I don't want to put the the blame in any way solely on recovering expanding predator numbers there's other there's the the pine beetle kill in the central part of the province there's some major ecosystem changes and people are finding that the forage is being cooked the summers are longer and hotter and there's lower nutrient digestible nutrient content in some mm-hmm. of these clear cuts um, maybe it's the heat maybe it's the herbicides um, and maybe it's the sheer size of the landscape change, the pine, the pine salvage logging, which has been and, enormous. So and people activity, and yeah, accelerated logging in places. Yeah, and, and I mean, I mean, and- to give you know, I'll I'll defend many aspects of the provincial researchers. They've got the moose research program out there. 
So they've got their five, or I can't remember if it's five or six intensive study areas. They've got 200 plus callers on moose trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and uh, there's the mule deer projects now. The big, the big you know, Southern Interior mule deer Southern project, Interior, yeah. you know, yeah, uh, Pat Stent and Adam Ford and his students and yeah. Sophie Gilbert out of uh, yeah, Idaho. BC Wildlife Federation. BC yeah. Wildlife, Jesse, Okanagan, Jesse's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so so many players involved. Um, I'm on, I'm on somebody's committee at UBCO on Chloe's committee. So, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on and it's the same old age old question in wildlife management, bottom up like food regulation versus predation. But there, there's definitely some weird things going on. Um, and you know, how to test that. I mean, you know, you would, the best way to test is to do a predator removal experiment and some kind of habitat experiment. Mm -hmm. The predator removal is only taking place in the caribou areas right now. And again, I would, I would say, look, those are some areas for win-wins for hunting groups. Like if you want to get moose, go for a, a tag up in the quintet or, you know, but, or Revelstoke for that matter. <laughs> There's a lot of tags out right now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, this whole shift in the large mammal community in BC, I would call it a mystery. We're trying to figure out why my colleagues are, um, you know, it, and it probably dates back a long time. Like we, we had a predator control branch for 60 years and ironically that allowed moose to escape their low density numbers where they were high density in the Peace, in the boreal, you know, northeast of uh, the Peace River. And then moose moved in, and uh, you know it's a new. It, it, it uh, there's a great review done uh, out of Prince George where uh, First Nations groups all over BC were interviewed, and moose were considered a delicacy as they moved south. It was a new thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean maybe we're getting to a lower density equilibrium. The elk piece, I mean again, fire suppression. So you have the Doug fir forests moving in to where that used to be allowed to burn and more grasslands. So forest encroachment is a huge issue. So I wonder if it's not a combination of all of these factors, hotter, drier summers, uh, the pine salvage logging and the, the mountain pine beetle salvage logging and the, the forest encroachment. So there's obviously been a huge shift. Um, I can explain the caribou story pretty easily. It's a complex story. And if you do A, B, and C, we have a hope of recovery. Um, but the, the larger shift in BC, I mean, you know, what are you guys hearing? Like it's, it's a big, yeah, I mean, we're, it's definitely a message that's, um, <clears throat> across the province, these, these types of, um, large population, you know, declines. And I, I think the big message that the public was trying to get across at the meeting that we were at in Cranbrook was this this more holistic look. Like, I mean, caribou are, the, you know, the leading edge of, you know, the greatest conservation concern right now, but people are trying to, you know, point out all of these, these other things as well. Yeah. There are the other projects that are ongoing, but I... I think, and, and I'm, I'm happy to see people thinking about that at a more holistic level, but yeah. it's like when it comes to endangered species in the province or in this country, it is a species by species approach. Right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not like there's the caribou is going to drive it, but we're going to cast this big net and, and 
bring all these other species along in this process so we don't lose any you know in the way so i i do empathize with with people that were at that meeting um you know sort of trying to move the agenda on to you know things like shirus moose um their numbers being down elk being down so it's just it's such it's such a complex issue and people's interests are more than just single species yeah i mean it's it's tough like uh, i'm by no means a climate change alarmist um but something's going on it's getting warmer and hotter there's big shifts going on and you know we have to monitor our ecosystems i mean when you look at it in the last 50 years the 10 five of the 10 biggest fire years have happened since 2015 you know 2010 or sorry since 2010 2010 2015 2014 2017 18 were five of the 10 biggest fire years recorded since 1950. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, we got fires happening right now in high level Alberta, high level, right? Like huge, it's May. Is it still May? Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's been it's still May. Like communities evacuated already. Yeah, so we have a community and ecosystem change. So we can't do better than to, we have to look at, you know, ecosystem approaches. But at the same time, you do need single species focus, especially when it comes to a thing like caribou. You can't just be like, oh, let's, let's manage for the vegetation and everything will be happy. Well, no, because we've got this lag time of, of industrial development that's going to lag out there. So you have to do some of the intensive stuff until the habitat recovers. Now there were two, two questions that that came out of the caribou recovery public meeting in Cranbrook. I think it would be worth, uh, worth addressing. And one was the climate change topic. And so people are saying that if climate change was happening anyways, which, you know, it would naturally without, you know, the human interference, uh, climate has, has always shifted were the caribou destined to disappear this low in latitude anyways? Well, certainly around, like I said, the Selkirks and Purcells. I mean, that's that's a, an uphill battle there with the fire regimes down there. And um, it will be, caribou will probably become a conservation-reliant species. You know, you'll probably have to do some level of management. But if we change some of the habitat management as well, you'll have to do less intervention in the medium to long term. Yeah. So again, we, some of us confuse what the climate change impacts going to be for caribou. Is it going to dry out the lichen or make them hotter, more bugs, you know, all, you know, less snowpack, all of that might play in, but the big, big, big direct implication of climate change is less severe winters, that facilitate things like white-tailed deer expansion. And we've seen that in Alberta. It's been linked with the deer expansion has been you know, mainly driven by a shift in climate, less severe winters since the 1960s. That severity index has moved up in latitude by three or four degrees latitude. Um, and the deer have moved in and then the predators move in. So it's the most direct link with climate is that we're gonna have more uh, more deer spreading in some areas, more moose, not everywhere. Again, that there's, you know, it's too hot in Minnesota for moose. That's why they're declining. There's some weird, really severe moose declines going on in Minnesota. But, um, if you have more fire return intervals in the mountains, cause of climate change, you're going to get more forage for moose and deer. And 
So it's that whole more moose deer to more predators to less caribou link that the climate is the real problem. In the longer term, yeah, it would be things like disease and parasites and, and body condition and that, you know, heat and insects and brain worm and all that. Yeah, but like the tick problem that the moose are suffering. Yeah, exactly. North America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> with, the, with that, keeping on the climate change thing, I, I'd read this. I've, I've had trouble going back and finding this in the literature. There's this phenomenon in North America <clears throat> about species that are, <clears throat> excuse me, um, following basically the recession of the glaciers, like even though it was 10, 12,000 years ago, they're still to this day either receding back with it or expanding um, behind it. Yeah. I always thought that the term was called glacial rebound, but when I researched it, it talks all about the geological stuff of of the earth rebounding from the loss of the weight of the glaciers. Is there anything to that with the caribou? Oh, yeah. I mean, it comes back to triage. And Sophie Gilbert, who's working on the, the, the mule, deer. mule deer project, she just did a really nice piece of work with, uh, with Stan Booten and the lab at the U of A when, when she was up there. Um, and uh, I, I, so they, they were looking at what they call the trailing edge. Where, where species are disappearing on the southern edge of this northward movement. And it would help if you could measure and predict all that, then you could go and look at the places where they're most likely to persist up here, let's say, in, in some more northerly pocket that's least likely in the next 50 years to be affected by climate, and then maybe let go of the ones here that you can't do anything about. So... It's kind of a pessimistic and you know way of thinking of things, but it does help prioritize. If you're like, well, these herds in, in Cold Lake, Alberta, or Purcell, Selkirk, look, these are at the trailing edge, not the leading edge of like birds moving north, because you have all these birds and you have grizzly bears and such being found further north. But if you flip it and think of the, not the leading edge, but the bottom trailing edge, exactly what you're talking about, um, then it can help you prioritize where these pockets further north are that are least likely and maybe to be affected by climate change. And that's where you focus, okay, let's restrict development there, but let Cold Lake be fully developed for oil and gas, mm, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. oil and gas exploitation, because that's where the climate's going to hit hardest anyway. So again, these are the kinds of, I won't say win-wins, but bang for buck analyses that have to be done. It really does have to be done because we cannot conserve everything everywhere, especially for a thing like caribou. Yeah, and the, and the expense that it takes to put, put the science behind it and, and yeah. the risk versus reward kind of exactly for that effort. Yeah. Some it's, people don't like this bang for buck mentality, but the bang is really the caribou bang. Yes. You know, and but there's always going to be a buck. Yeah. There has to be. So you've got to figure out where your biggest potential for growth is at the least cost and and divide one by the other yeah. basically. And, and then there's those that uh that don't like the idea of management. It's just like just let let nature do its thing, right? Like it's it's Well, there's no such thing as that anymore. Uh, yeah. Right? We're, like we're here, nature we're changing oh, We've everything. changed everything even if you don't use plastic, you are alive in this valley bottom which would otherwise not, you know not have you yep. you know yep. uh, you know 200 years ago there'd be way less of you so we we hear that all the time let nature take its course don't tinker 
while we've tinkered for a hundred years. So yeah, or more, yeah. or more. Yeah. So if you don't tinker, like we've tinkered a lot. So um, it it's a it's a weird view to just put your head in the sand because we have many tinkering success stories. The Channel Island fox off the coast of California, right? It was the same story as the caribou. The pigs were introduced, the eagles became residents, the, the golden eagles, and the fox were being driven to extinction. We tinkered there, they eradicated the pigs, killed a few eagles, and the foxes have fully recovered. You know, we, we've learned a lot about wildlife management. Like I said, the... Um, California condor. The condor, the sheep example, um, and... Uh, grizzly bears, like I said, you know, grizzly bear recovery. Um, yeah, we, we tinker because we know a lot more. If we just let nature take its course after we've changed so much of the land, well, that equates to extinction. And that, so, that becomes, <clears throat> becomes a huge ethical discussion as well. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, we tinker with it and then we go hands off and, yeah, yeah. and let things unravel. That That's a, that's a big ethical question for society too. So la- last thing from the um, public meetings in Cranbrook, how much of a role does the grizzly bear play in the predation of caribou? Oh, there the, are people that were basically like they're citing the studies in Alaska. Yeah, Lane you know, Adams' and all, work all and kinda, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. sort of trying to superimpose that down here, saying like, "Hey, you're not even looking at this. It's probably the hunt was closed on grizzly bears, yeah, and they're eating all the calves." And it's right. like, well, this valley here has a good healthy grizzly bear population but we talked earlier in the podcast we have a moose population was 60 70 calves per hundred and a good healthy grizzly bear population so you know logic would say well then they'd be eating moose calves if they were impacting the caribou calves as well bob but they're not they're clearly not affecting the moose so how how big of a factor is the grizzly bear in the predation? Grizzly bears eat adult and calf caribou. They they would specific calves are, are specifically vulnerable. There's no question. Um, and the studies out of Alaska where they were able to call are very very like two day old caribou. Grizzly bear predation was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one new study, very very small pilot study, where they were able to keep about five video cameras on grizzly bears. And uh, the kill rates were unbelievable, more than anybody ever assumed. So instead of collaring the prey, they collared the predator and put video cameras on. And we just put five such cameras out on black bears in Christina Lake in northeast Alberta in the oil sands area. So we're really stoked to get that information back. To see what they're eating. To see what they're eating. Yeah, we, we retrieve those collars in about two and a half months now. And... Um, yeah, there's no question that bears are a bit of a black box, but we know they're like a flat tax. There have always been bears. There's not 10 times as many bears or 10 times fewer bears than there were 100 years ago because bears aren't, bear numbers are not directly linked to moose and deer. They've got another primary prey, which is berries and glacier lilies and tubers and roots and corms. And, you know, so bear numbers don't fluctuate like wolves and cougars would with the influx of a huge number of new prey. So there's an ecological rationale for not like reducing bears because there are more bears, black bears and grizzly bears, than there are caribou, especially black bears, right? There's um, in some areas. So you'd have to kill a lot of innocent bears just to save one caribou. 
right? It's, it's not the same as the wolf where there's several dozen wolves in a given area and each one of them tastes meat and some of them tastes caribou. Whereas bears, the odds of any one bear killing any one caribou is extremely low. If every bear ate one caribou a year, caribou would have been extinct 30 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you, you, you know, there's an ecological reason for not managing bears. But that doesn't mean that bears aren't an impact. They are a huge impact, but they are a steady impact that has been steady probably for hundreds of years, whereas the impact of wolves has been increased because of everything we talked about for now, landscape change. So, so the wolf numbers, you know, have done this, you know, whereas bear numbers are probably more steady. They're probably a bit lower because of the salmon being interrupted with all the dams on the Columbia River, but there's, but the clear cuts have created more berries for them. Um, but I agree with those people who are raising that, that biological issue. Bears are an impact. Um, and will stopping the hunt impact caribou? Hard to know. Uh, the hunt never really took that many bears, right? So it, it won't mass it as, as we've shown the hunt, as Bruce has shown, the hunt is, was sustainable. It's yeah. an ethics thing to stop the hunt, yeah. the grizzly bear yeah, and hunt. The, and, and the hunt was being managed so that hunter mortality as a f part of overall human cause mortality in the populations that were being managed didn't destabilize grizzly bear populations, right. didn't c cause them to decline. If yeah. they did, then, you know, tags were taken away. So the objective was always to continue to allow some hunting, but the grizzly bear population without changing the trajectory of a grizzly bear population. Exactly. So what you're saying is grizzly bears were this background noise. There was a little bit of hunting yeah. that just allowed bear populations to stay at these backgrounds. So their impact on caribou would not really have been affected that much, whether there is hunting or not. Exactly. Hunting, so. That more or less captures it. Um, yeah. I mean, however, if you have local grizzly bear hunting, like, the guide outfitter camp we have north of town here around the maternity pen or some, you know, that, that could help. And, and local black bear hunting on certain ridges where we know caribou are, you know, I, I'm not going to say that wouldn't help at all. It okay. might, yep. it might. Um, and that gets back to the point of working with locals, right? Yeah. And, and bring, bringing hunting back as a, as a management tool rather than wildlife being managed for hunting, but to actually be using it as as a conservation tool in the yeah. case of caribou. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a tricky one though, overall, you know, and, uh, but yeah. it's, it's good. It's good information. Uh, public needs, needs to understand that a bit, bit more and, yeah. and you know, the role that it could play. Yeah. Um, and if, if that management levers needed, uh, hopefully people would be informed about, you know, how, where, when, and why. Yeah. And, and, and especially in areas like, no, not so much the Elk Valley, but north of Revelstoke and these rugged, rugged mountain areas, there are so many back valleys that people just can't get to. Except some of our, you know, friends we mentioned earlier, you know, who are really, really rugged backcountry hunters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's a, a smaller It's a small, like, there's community. so many avalanche paths back there. There's so, so much grizzly bear habitat that... I'll never say never, but w you know, we'll be unimpacted for the decades to come because it's really in the middle of nowhere with yeah. such steep areas and in um, proximity to caribou in proximity to caribou. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have healthy 
black and grizzly bear populations uh, in the northern Columbia Mountains. The DNA studies have been done. The, the monitoring's been done. They're high densities, so it's... Uh, they're a factor. They're a factor. It's an interesting mystery. I wonder, I wonder how much more abundant black bears are than they would have been, let's say, 200 years ago. I mean, there's, there's ideas about Aboriginal, Aboriginal harvest and uh, some evidence on that front that Charles Kay and Cliff White pursue, Cliff White from the Rockies, that, you know, there used to be a lot more people on the land um, going after bears. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And they may have also sort of reacted to the human occupation as well. We were persecuting grizzly bears, um, prob- probably, you know, maybe more than black bears because yeah. they're a more fearsome, more fearsome you know, yeah. creature. Uh, and then, of course, black bears are a little bit like, um, you know, whitetails in the sense that they can benefit from human disturbance, yeah. you know, the more cut blocks, those sorts of things. So you reduce their competition, which was grizzly bears. So so maybe we are in a situation where our black bear population is maybe more than it was 100 years ago. but. Don't know if we yeah. have science on that. Well, so. a big dynamic here and in many communities, but especially here, is there were well over 100 grizzly bears taken out in a short time of Revelstoke, like 100 big grizzly bears because of the dump. Oh, right. So they were either moved or many were just killed. Yeah. We had grizzly bears walking right through town, town in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So there were 100 bears. And so that had to have had an, a regional impact on the population. So now there's probably more bears here than there were in the 90s wow. because 100 plus, I can't remember the number, something like 130 were removed in a very short, like five-year window when the dump got closed. Wow. Yeah. So the science on caribou recovery, that's uh, kind of your your real forte right now, um, trying to use science to provide the evidence to say what are the levers for caribou recovery. Um, it's pretty solid. You, you you think that we kind of know some pretty important leaders? I think we know the causes of decline. I think we're always trying to push ourselves on, you know, is there some health issues with caribou for sure? We're in the process of testing the lever. So the science is very new on the, on the, yeah, we have a strong signal now. Okay. But it's new. Okay. Yeah. So where... Where do we need to go? Where do we need to go as society, <clears throat> as a province, decision makers? What are the next steps? Yeah, I think we need to do the trade-off analysis rather than just, um, you know, speculate about it. Like, okay. what's it going to cost to do this and focus on the major wins? Right. You know, I just, I just want to focus on the areas where we can win. Like, we cannot recover everywhere. Um, that's just not realistic not only from a socioeconomic perspective but also biology right there's a higher risk further south uh in the selkirk purcells so um i think we need to focus on where we have the biggest wins short-term predator prey restoration with habitat protection and management um i urge us to take a serious look before we get into this captive breeding thing um when we have populations of caribou growing at 20%, like from this year to last year, that local population unit that includes the burnt pine and quintet just increased by 20%. Do we really need to spend a lot of resources with captive breeding? Um, gotcha. That's going to be very controversial, what I just said, and it will uh, it will uh, piss off some of my colleagues, but like that is a risky endeavor, especially if you're going to take your source animals from some of these smaller herds here, like... Are we going to risk 
some of that. So, um, yeah, keep going with the partnerships. The maternity pen up north worked well. We have to evaluate what's gone on uh, around here. It, the penning and such may play part of the equation, but uh, the bigger fish to fry has to do with habitat, uh, protecting free from habitat alteration, habitat disturbance, and uh, the short-term predator-prey piece. Yeah, yeah. Right on. Is that fair enough? No, that's 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 a good that's a good message. And you know, the science is going on. Um, we have science-based management, or you know, at least the evidence is being put forward. Um, that's consistent, you know, in this area with um, the tenant of the uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation to let science and evidence drive. Um, drive wildlife policy so people are always wanting those pieces in wildlife management and conservation um, they're there evidence is being put forward um, the socioeconomic science is the piece you're saying needs to come in and, yes. and society needs to be able to make informed choices about about trade-offs with caribou yeah yeah uh, awesome discussion man uh, yeah, is there anything thanks, any big thing you think we missed? I don't know. We no, I think we, I think we hit the nail. I think we covered it really well. Um, there's one, there's one piece like the socioeconomic piece is I've never written about that or studied social science. I, um, but I'm getting, as you get older, everybody tends to think about that more. I've noticed like wildlife scientists tend to think about that more. And I have some colleagues from Norway who are interested in coming here to do some work and, um, doing some trade-off stuff and asking people like, okay, if X percent, if all the habitat got protected, would you hold your nose and tolerate some predator-prey management in the short term? Or if, ask, those if questions. A, ask those hard questions of the people who are really, really opposed to, to predator reductions. Um, that's a big piece that's needed. I think it's a piece in BC that we're completely ignoring right now. And um, these Norwegian guys are experts at social science and uh, they have ties here with other research projects. And, and one friend of mine has his kid who's a dog musher up in the Yukon for the last decade or so. And so he knows the Pacific Northwest really well. And um, I think that's something that we should dive into in British Columbia and get into these hard questions of, you know, what, we, what would you tolerate given X habitat work? And we have BC and Alberta as perfect te test cases because Alberta votes sort of you know, uh, uh, like 50 something percent, high 50s, 58 percent conservative. And in BC, we vote about 38 percent conservative. And that's reflected in our wildlife policy. So you could do an experiment and gauge opinion in Alberta in this sort of habitat protection versus wolf management uh, question and then do the same in BC and you could learn from that and yeah. we could we could adjust policy accordingly and say oh like okay we could we could protect x percent more of the habitat because people are okay with that with uh, you know some short-term wolf management you know if we learn about that yeah so I think it's a piece that we're missing and huge huge piece because yeah. we, we have to get away from um, public opinion polls and 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 tallying up comments on Facebook pages yeah. to make these types of exactly. social decisions in the province yeah um, thanks so much for your time, Rob. Thanks, Mark. This, yeah. is, uh, this was a good discussion. Caribou, 
Caribou Recovery in British Columbia, Alberta, and Canada. Uh, that's what we talked about. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you got any uh, questions or comments about this episode, um, our email is in the show notes. Uh, pick that up. Uh, hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com. Uh, find us, uh, check us out on our on our website, and please go on to iTunes or whatever platform you are downloading this and leave us a rating, hopefully a good rating, and uh, engage us. We want to hear from you and bring you the content you want and get better. Thanks, everyone. See you in the next episode.